Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. What a wonderful truth. Christ was born for you. Oh, come, all you unfaithful. what Luke is sharing with us as we look at mess uh, continue on in Luke the enlightened eyes we're in Luke chapter 11 we're looking at verses 33 through 36 this morning just realize it's our 73rd message in Luke and we're up to chapter 11 almost getting through it you know it always surprises me how much pain occurs through a smaller minor part of the body have you ever noticed that you know, it's the cut on the little finger that just gives you the most pain. Maybe the stub of the toe or maybe that's the incidental bump with the funny bone. And it just brings, uh, you know, brings you to tears and can just bring you down. Maybe a toothache. Some of you have suffered that recently and how the whole body just aches and just the very smallest parts of our bodies can cause many times the biggest pain. As a diabetic, one of the things that's drilled into us is the habit and the importance of being very careful with our extremities, you know, our hands and our our fingers, our toes, our feet, so on and so forth, because they can be easily cut or broken or develop rashes without our knowledge. I had one friend who who exited his car and didn't realize for several days that he had actually broken several bones in his feet and wound up having a major surgery and being in a in a, uh, in a wheelchair uh, for a long time. Didn't realize it. Just gets out, of the, gets out of his car and winds up breaking his foot. Because of the danger diabetics, or because of that danger, diabetics are encouraged to check their feet carefully and to keep them in good condition. It's not a good idea to walk around without socks and shoes. and so That's one of the things I'm learning. Of course, as Mark Lowry says, we do know what God, why God created toes. Do you know why that is? So that we can find furniture in the dark. that's the only reason you have toes it's not a good idea to walk without those you never know what you might step on what you might rub against and the same thing is important for all of us though as we get older and our bones become more brittle and our skin uh, thinner I think we're noticing that and here's where it comes to self-evaluation becomes a good habit that one acquires in order for one to be healthy. As we grow older, it's just better just to check all the boxes, you know, of our health. How are we checking our eyes, our teeth, things of that nature? And as you get older, it seems like you're doing more and more. Self-evaluation is very, very good for us. Well, here's the question that we've been asking as we continue on in that vein. Is who do you believe Jesus is? What do you think of the man? the message, and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Is he the son of God as he claimed? Or is Jesus a liar? Is he a lunatic or Lord? Eventually, everyone is going to have to answer that question. And we're thinking about that during the Christmas season because as we, you know, you see the bumper stickers, right? Jesus is the reason for the season. This is a time where where even the most secular person will think, oh yeah, there is Jesus. You know, this is Christmas. This is the time of his birth. But the question is, who do you think Jesus is? And so we've been encouraging you to ask that question of your families, your friends, your co-workers, and so on and so forth. Because the answer to that question is so important. Your very eternal destiny rests on getting that answer correct. Who is Jesus? What do you make of him? 
It's not enough to claim that he's just a good moral teacher like many do, or that he was a great influencer, or that he was a man of peace as many would attest to. You see, Luke has spent some time interviewing firsthand accounts of Jesus' ministry. They include eyewitnesses to his many miracles, audiences of his teaching and his preaching, and disciples who abandon everything to follow him. Luke is writing his gospel in order to give confidence to his Gentile readers who did not witness the things of Jesus, who never saw Jesus in person, who never had even stepped foot in Jerusalem or maybe even into Israel. He wants to give them confidence that the stories or the tales that have been given to them are true. You can be confident that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Chosen One of God who has come to redeem the children of God. In this same gospel, as you and I open the pages... This same gospel has been preserved throughout history in order to give you and I the same confidence as they did, as it did for those 2,000 years ago. Jesus is Lord. Luke has pointed out the miraculous birth of Jesus. He has given us the pronouncement of the angels and the shepherds, as well as Simeon and Anna themselves gave evidence of Jesus' identity and purpose when he was brought before the temple for uh, for. Uh, there in Genesis, uh, or Luke, excuse me, Luke 3 and 4. Luke has recorded Jesus' successful resistance to the temptation of Satan in the wilderness. He's given us the various miracles that displayed his authority over both the natural and the supernatural world, as well as his teaching that amazed and astonished and even scandalized his listeners. Over the past few months, we have been reading of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and his divine appointment at Calvary. Very soon, Jesus will be betrayed, tried, tortured, and crucified, buried, and then rise again on that third day. Knowing that his time is near, Jesus has been spending his last remaining 18 months or so in time in teaching, instructing, and preparing his disciples for that time when he will no longer be with them. Now, the last few weeks, bringing it more to our immediate context, we have considered the confrontations that Jesus has encountered with those that are following along with him and listening as he's teaching his disciples. And we have to be reminded that the crowd, when you see in Scripture, the crowd always consists of not only of his disciples, those that are, that are, that are wanting to follow Christ, but also those that are curious about Jesus. They want to see something new. There's those, they, they want to know what the excitement is all about. It consists of those that are hurt and broken, and they're hoping to have some healing. They want Christ to heal them, do a, a miracle for them. But there's also those typically usually lawyers and religious leaders that want to derail his ministry and are seeking opportunities to trip him up and test him. And then there are those that are skeptics. And we saw that last week who are wanting Jesus to perform another greater miracle. Be like Moses or Elijah or or Elisha. Do, Do something more. You haven't done enough to prove who you really are. Jesus is charged, as we saw last week, week, both the accusers, those who accuse Jesus of being an agent of Satan, he accuses them and those that were skeptics, show us more signs. He has accused them of being in league with Satan himself. 
And he warns them that their continued unbelief about who he is puts them in danger of judgment and condemnation at the final day of judgment. Again, who and what you believe Jesus is is important. Our prayer here at OVBC is that all of you here today or who watch me online would repent and submit to the Lordship of Christ. For scripture warns that there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Oprah may tell you that there's many ways to Christ, but that's an untruth. It's a lie. Straight from Satan. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to be right with God. Now, as we continue on in today's passage, Jesus summarizes his teaching with a common sense observation that leads to a spiritual truth along with a word of warning and encouragement for self evaluation. So here we are, Luke chapter 11, verse 33 through 36. It's going to be up here in the monitor, but again, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles each Sunday. If you need one, let me know. I want to get one to you because we are going to look at a lot of portions of scriptures today. So whether you have your Bible, whether it, may, it might be an app on a tablet, but whatever you way, that way you can follow along. Luke chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Luke continues to write, says, uh, quoting Jesus, Jesus says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of life. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Father, thank you for your word. This has come to us from Luke's hand, from those eyewitnesses' accounts, those who had seen and witnessed who Jesus is, those who have come to accept him. And Father, I thank you that we now can open up your word and we can read those words preserved for us. But Father, we also have to do the, the difficult work or the interesting work also of reading your word and then saying, what does this mean for us today? 2,000 years later, how does this help me? How does this apply to my life? So let us do that work. Let us have freedom of thought, clarity of thought. Lord, let there not be many distractions. But Father, let all that be said here be glorifying to you and for our good. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So as we come here, Jesus is using a metaphor of a lamp and a light. And he's done this in several other passages. He's done this earlier in Luke as well. And he's using this to teach the importance of self-evaluation. So he's doing this to teach the importance of spiritual self-evaluation. He makes a common sense statement that the purpose of a lamp is to shed light so that one may see where they are going. Now this might be one of those moments where Jesus said that and his disciples and those are listening to him say, duh, uh, this is why you do a lamp. Uh, we understand that. It's rhetorical. Yeah, there's no sense to, to argue about it. We understand that. Now, no one, he says, lamp, lights a lamp or a candle or a lantern and then places it in a place where it does no good. It just makes no sense. He had taught this earlier to his disciples back in Luke eight sixteen when he says no one lights a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under the bed. But in the same way, no, they, they put it on a stand so it may give light to everyone so we can see where we're going, so we can see where the furniture is, save our toes, so to speak. There's no surprise here. 
But then he uses that to point out a spiritual truth. So, so we get this simple common sense observation. Here's a light. You light it. It's there for everyone to see. You don't cover it up. It just makes no sense. But it points to a spiritual truth in verse 34 that you may want to underline where he says, your eye is the lamp of your body. Read that again. Your eye is the lamp of your body. Now, this is an interesting saying, and and to be honest, it doesn't really make much sense. It's hard to understand exactly what he's saying here. So we need a little bit more historical background to help us understand when Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body. Theologian Joel Green writes, it's here on the monitor so you can follow along. According to the physiology prevalent in Greco-Roman antiquity, they believe that the eyes do not function by allowing light to come in, as you and I know today. Light comes in. It's, it's the way in which light comes into the eye. But by allowing the body's own light to go out from it. The eye is the conduit or source of light that makes sight possible. So they believed in the ancient world that light came from you and light, for the most part, kind of came out from your eyes. This is also given by another historian that writes about Plato. Remember Plato? Maybe from your Western studies. One of the greatest Greek philosophers, and he contributed greatly to, to the medical knowledge of that time, but there were some things in which he just got wrong. And this is one of them. Perhaps his worst idea or error was the idea that a stream of light, a fire, emanated from the eyes, rebounding off an object, combined with sunlight, allowing it to be seen by the light. Now, I've always wanted to be a superhero, so having light or fire come from my eyes would be kind of cool. That'd be kind of neat. But that's not what he's saying here. But Jesus now, he's the creator and sustainer of light. Does he not know that the light is just, or the eye is just bringing in light? No, he's just using the the, the historical uh, knowledge that they had at that time to point out a fact. He knew that this was not the case, but he phrases the truth in such a way that the original audience would understand. When most of us think of the eye, we think of the the organ, right? We think of the eyeballs and, and all the things that are behind the eye that allows us to see. But it also has another meaning in scripture when you see the eye. It refers to the faculty of mental perception or of knowing and understanding. So when you see, it says your eye, it's telling us about the things that we can comprehend. The thing that you and I can observe and we bring in and we we take it and we filter it through our knowledge and understanding and we come up with an idea. It allows us to perceive the world around us and enables us to make decisions. John Calvin writes that it is the eyes, not the hands or the feet that direct a a person's path and direction. We don't typically feel our way around except in the dark. But when you have a a lamp out, light out, we look. And we follow with our eyes. And so that's what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus points out that our eyes determine if we are healthy or bad. Healthy indicates moral health. One who is morally perfect, morally good. While when he talks about your eye being bad, refers to that which is evil and wicked. Earlier, Jesus had taught that every healthy tree bears good fruit. Remember that, that common sense teaching. And, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So he's bringing it back in the same way of your eyes. You can evaluate your spiritual health by the, by the health of your eye. 
The ESV study Bible remarks in this passage here on the monitor again for you that the eye that is healthy describes a spiritually healthy way of looking at things. A bad eye or an evil way of looking at things results in a life full of moral and spiritual darkness. And I think this is where many of us, you can hold that up for a moment, Ben, is this is where many of us are. And this is some of the things that we do with our adult core class that's at 945. And I always encourage people to come to that because in that class, we are trying to think, trying to teach ourselves how to think biblically. You and I live in a world that's you know, deconstructing. That's the big key word right now. I don't know if you've heard of it. Deconstructing all the time. It's talking about young people who are deconstructing from their faith, realizing or believing that everything that they were taught was wrong. And so they want to just question everything, right? Coming back from the 60s, you know, question everything. And so we live in a world in which many times the perception of the world is wrong. Hence why I always encourage people is when we're looking for counsel, go to godly biblical counsel. Not a worldly counsel, not a counsel that's based in, in, a, in a wrong look and view of man. If you can't understand sin and God, how could you ever get anything right with anyone? And so it's very important for us to look at things in the way that scripture looks at it. In verse 35, Jesus then gives command that comes in the shape of a warning when he talks about your eye. He says, therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. In other words, what if the light, what you're looking at is in darkness? You need to self-evaluate yourself, just as a diabetic must care, be careful how he walks in the surroundings. As a soldier is commanded to keep his head on a swivel, meaning that he needs to have situational awareness. The Christian is to practice self-evaluation and an awareness of life that there be no wickedness in him. Many times you and I are going through life and we're spending hours just bringing in stuff, Netflix, movies, TVs, news, Instagram, Facebook, whatever, Twitter, all these things we're bringing into the world. And many times we're doing it without using any type of spiritual filter. And, and many of you know what that G-I-G-O means, right? In the in computer, garbage in, you get garbage out. People will complain, well, this computer just doesn't work. It's not giving me the right answers. Well, it's typically, it's not the computer's fault, right? It's, it's what you're putting into it. It can only give you what you put in. And so many of us are wondering, why are our lives a mess? Why am I still struggling with this sin? Why is it that I cannot get victory? Why is it that my prayers don't seem to move past the ceiling? Why is it that my life just doesn't seem to be working out? But yet we profess Christ and we believe that Christ is just going to make everything better. You know, for us, it's just add Christ, right? If you've got a problem, add Christ. Add a little bit of Bible, stir it up, and now you should be fine. You know, every day is going to be like Friday. It's not how the Bible works. It's not how the Christian life works works we need to be careful we need to watch what we're watching we need to filter things through and make sure that we're getting the right perception one of king david's most famous psalms contains the cry see it here search me O god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts he ask have you ever started the morning with that type of prayer see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way Everlasting. What a great psalm. One that you and I should memorize. We should, we should have that as our screensaver or, or put up where a place where we see it very often. 
We need to ask God to search. Why? Because he's telling us to evaluate yourself. See if you are in the light. This warning contrasts self-evaluation with self-deception. As he's looking upon the crowd and he's looking at those that are accusing Jesus of being an agent of Satan and casting out demons. Those who are skeptics saying, give us more signs. He says, you are deceived. You're not evaluating yourself. He says this to them many times. You think you know the scriptures, but you do not. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Why? Their interpretations, their applications were wrong. They were not thinking biblically. They were not thinking God's thoughts. Thomas Schreiner writes that the most frightening thing of all is thinking that we are completely right if in fact we're completely wrong. Have you ever had that thing, uh, that feeling? I believe I'm right in this, but what if I'm wrong? I think that happens as soon as a, a newborn is born and they're giving it to you and they say, okay, you got to leave the hospital now. Oh my goodness. What am I going to do? I've got to raise this. I have no idea what I'm doing. I can't even take care of my own life. Now I'm responsible for someone else. What if I get it wrong? Has any parent not thought that? Yeah, we do all the time. We second guess ourselves. And maybe just you and yourself. Should I go to college? Should I not? Should I date this person? Should I not? Is this the right way of my life? I just don't know. What if I'm wrong? And so now we're like the sluggard who doesn't go outside because there might be a lion out there. Proverbs. And so we find ourselves just playing video games and just keeping ourselves entertained and just busy and keep our mind full. We don't want any quiet time because all of a sudden we start to think. And God forbid we do any type of self-evaluation. It's one of the most frightening things. And that's why scripture calls us to examine our lives, to test ourselves, and to make sure that our election, that our profession of faith is sure. Self-deception is a tool that Satan uses to paralyze our Christian witness, stunt our spiritual growth, and promote a prideful attitude. One of the things that's most uh, uh, despairing for many of us is when we think that in many many churches, there are many people who profess Christ. They said a prayer. They got their name written in the Bible saying they got saved on this date. They got baptized. They went to a junior church. They went to a vacation Bible school or a summer camp, and they repeated a prayer. And then they believe that they're saved, but yet they live their lives as if Christ has no meaning in their life. They're deceived. That's why Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. But Lord, Lord, I cast out demons. I did all these things in your name. Does Jesus say, you didn't cast out any demons. You didn't do any good works. No, he says, I just, so what? You can do all that, and I just don't know you. My prayer is that none of you are self-deceived. That's why I always tell parents, if your young child accepts Christ, you write their name in the Bible, church gives you a certificate, whatever, that child grows older and they start to see some doubts in their salvation, or you yourself begin to doubt their salvation. Don't take them back to the beginning of the Bible. It says, no, you you got saved here. See, I wrote it down. Or here, here's, your, here's your VBS uh, thing. I, I, we have a videotape. You went forward. Now, that's not proof of salvation. A changed life. 
a life of self-evaluation. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Galatians chapter 5. You see, our spiritual health is not much different from our physical health. Scripture encourages us to develop the habit of self-evaluation of our hearts. As King Solomon warns in Proverbs 4, as you're turning, also look up here at the screen, Galatians chapter 5. But I want to give you a few things real quickly. Look at King Solomon says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Like another version says, guard your heart, for from it is the wellspring of life. In other words, if the head of the fountain is dirty and polluted, then everything that flows down from that is. And so when someone says, what did Jesus say? It's not so much that our mouths speak, but we speak from what? The heart. And so you and I need to do those heart checkups. Am I guarding my heart? That's the G-I-G-O. If you're filling your mind with all sorts of garbage from the world, then don't be surprised when that is what's coming out. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, still up there, I believe, examine yourself. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Christians here. To see whether you are in the faith. That seems like an odd statement. No, wait, I said a prayer. Eternal security. That's not what scripture is saying here. He says, no, you need to examine. You need to show whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? The apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.10 says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall, sword never fail. So he shows us these things that you and I are to self-evaluate. He goes on, these qualities are faith, hope, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. That's that, that ladder, Peter's ladder, the spiritual ladder. In today's passage, Jesus encourages his audience to adopt that habit of self-evaluation. Now you're in Galatians chapter 5. We should have room, time to get there. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. That's very clear. You are going to recognize these in your life. They are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if like me, when you were reading those things, you were probably uh, mentally underlining or circle some of the things that you yourself are struggling with, maybe even this today, maybe even this morning. You're struggling with these things. And the Bible says that you and I need to self-evaluate. Are these things evident in our lives? Now, for many of us, we say, no, but we're self-deceived. Ask your spouse if you're married. Ask a close friend, someone you trust. Hey, are these things evident in my life? And, and in what way? And to what degree? Clearly, these are things that you and I are to avoid. But you and I, if we're honest, know that our times are marked with fits of anger. Times of idolatry where we're worshiping something other than God. Jealousies, rivalries, dissensions. My question for you this morning 
is do you have enough self-awareness to realize if your life is marked by these attitudes and these actions? Had you developed the habit to where it comes and it comes quickly? Why did I react that way? Why am I thinking that way? Why is my heart and desires being pulled in that direction? That's why we're called, by the way, to live a life of community. So that we may have others pray for us, to enlighten us, to encourage us, and if necessary, rebuke us. One of the saddest things that's happened because of COVID is there are many who have just departed from their churches and no longer attending church. It's one reason we took down our Facebook uh, um, uh, live stream, is people just weren't coming back. But the Bible says, no, you need to be in community. There's things that you and I need to do. We need to encourage one another. We need to love one another. We need to bear one another's burdens. You can't do that through Zoom. All right? Maybe just to a little bit degree, but you really can't do that. You're given spiritual gifts. This morning, you aren't here just to listen to me teach and preach. No, you're here to use your spiritual gift to encourage and lift and, and build one another up. You should come to church ready to do what God has called you to do. He has given you a spiritual gift if you're a child of God. In whatever church you are, use your spiritual gift. That might be holding the doors for someone. It might be just uh, shaking hands. It might be uh, giving a smile. It might be helping a parent uh, as we have our children in here with us a little more than than others. Is helping a, a parent with a child. It might be praying for someone, encouraging them. You have a spiritual gift that God has called you to use, and that's in community, and we need that. So others can say and say, boy, the way you just reacted, that didn't seem to be in a godly way. We need to be open to that. As we continue in Galatians 5, 23, 23, whatever that might be, I think in Rob talk, that's verse 22, we read that instead of the works of the flesh, we are to exhibit the following if our eye is healthy and full of life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Well, there goes my shoulders. The self-evaluation, does my life reflect that type of attitude, actions? The fruits of the Spirit indicate that we are healthy and spiritually growing. It signifies that our profession of faith is true and it's maintained through a lifetime. By this, listen to this. You and I need to have a lifetime habit of repentance. It is not a one-time deal. It is a lifetime, a daily habit of repentance, confession, and submission to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. John Calvin writes that Jesus' exhortation here is to see that thy mind, which ought to have shone like a candle to guide all thy actions, do not darken and mislead thy whole life. We've spoken about this again. Let me give you real quick for those who may not have heard it. Is when you and I see that we're to love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and the strength. What he's talking about is not the organ again. But our heart consists of three things. It consists of our mind, the things that we think. That's why he says in Philippians 4, 8, think on these things, those things that are pure, lovely, good report. That's your, that's your AVG uh, uh, antivirus. If anything comes through, it should not come through. Whatever you're watching, whatever you're doing, 
It's to catch those things and say, do not think on these things. So it's, it's how you think. And you and I need to have a biblical mind on how we think. Why? Because then our heart also consists not only of the mind, but our affections, the things that we love, the things that we desire. And that's usually shown with the matters of the flesh. I desire this. I yearn for this. These are the things that I love. I love to hear gossip. I, I, love, I love to watch things on TV that I probably shouldn't. Things that I would not want my wife to see or someone else to know. Or I, I yearn for these things. I yearn to be popular. I yearn to have this or that. And so again, we need to bring that to the point where we're, where we're learning and, and, and having the affections of the things of God. And then not only of our mind and our affections, but then it's of our will. And that's the choices that you and I make. You and I need to do self-evaluation of our mind and of our heart, our affections, so that we may choose the right way to walk. That's what he's talking about. That's what John Calvin is saying. Are you self-evaluating? Your your whole uh, mind, what you think of, what you yearn for, what your affections are, and what you choose ought to be like a light that others can see. And that you yourself can acknowledge If you and I successfully self-evaluate our hearts, Jesus remarks in Luke 11, we're back in Luke 11, verse 36. He says, if if then your whole body is full of light, because you've done some self-evaluation, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. This echoes the truth that's found in 1 John chapter 1. I believe we have it up here. Five through seven, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. You and I reflect him and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us all from sin. Those who receive the light then are to shine that light to others. It's that light that God has given us. You and I are not the sun that emanates life or light. You and I are a moon. We are a dead rock that reflects the light of the sun. It's funny, isn't it though? What are all the romantic songs written of? The moon, right? I myself, I love going out with the boys and looking at the stars and looking at the moon, especially a full moon. It's beautiful many, many times. But it's just a dead rock that reflects the light of the sun. That's what you and I are. See, Satan himself thought he was the light. He was just reflecting the light of glory. He says, no, I, I am beautiful. I will set myself like the most high. He was self-deceived. Didn't recognize that he was not of the light. Those who receive the light then are to shine to others. One theologian notes that when a person is filled with the light of Christ, it will affect his or whole being. It will be evident as we see there in Galatians. Their life will be changed. In Matthew 5, 14, we read that if you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden, 
nor do people light a lamp or put it on a basket. Again, saying the same thing, but on a stand. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying is, let that light be healthy. Eradicate any darkness that is in there. And when you do that, that light will be a light to others. Jesus is warning those in the crowd, those that are skeptics, the accusers, those that are just the curious onlookers, and maybe even the disciples, that they need to begin the hard work of self-evaluation. That they are in danger of self-deception. Pastor John MacArthur commenting on the crowd gathered around Jesus on this passage writes, the problem was their perception, not a lack of light. There was plenty of light for them to see who Jesus was through the healing of the man who was mute by a demon, by him walking on water and all the various miracles they saw and through his teaching. It was their perception, not a lack of light. Continuing with John MacArthur, he says, they did not need a sign. They needed hearts to believe the great display of divine power they had already seen. How many times have you and I missed the divine light of Christ in scripture, or in the work and love of a brother and sister in Christ, the profession of faith of a church. They have witnessed the great and wondrous works of Jesus. They had heard his powerful messages and insightful teachings. They have witnessed his amazing authority over the natural and supernatural world, yet they still rejected him and doubted his identity. You and I must not make the same mistake. In our scripture reading earlier from John's gospel, we read that in Jesus was life and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It says that he was the light, speaking of Jesus, and he came to bear witness about that light. And the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. The question then is, how is it that some were able to perceive the identity of Jesus and some did not? Why could some see that Jesus was the light and others could not? What was the difference? How were some of them opened and others closed? The problem that all of humanity faces today, that they are blinded and not able to see the light of Christ. Scriptures informs us that all of humanity is blinded by three things. The first thing is we're blinded by our own sin. Turn to Romans, if you would please, chapter 1, verse 18. Scripture that many of you would know. In this, we see that we are blinded by our own sin. In Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. And because God has shown it to them. In verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have made. In other words, there is a natural general revelation that God has shown everyone. And everyone is to see that and be directed to a creator. 
But he goes on to say in there, so that they are without excuse, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We are blinded by our own sin. We have suppressed the truth and exchanged the truth. All of humanity is plunged into this darkness. And even when the light comes, they are still blinded by this darkness. How? Number two, they're blinded by Satan. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4, the apostle Paul writes that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there is a sense in which God has blinded their minds and then God has also used Satan to blind their minds and he prevents them from hearing, when they hear the word of God, it just falls on the wayside or it falls in in the thorny bushes or soil. And so there's a sense when Satan blinds them to who Jesus truly is. And then thirdly, they're blinded by God. So they're blinded by sin, they're blinded by Satan, and blinded by God. I think I said it earlier, he's blinded by God. But it's blinded by sin, blinded by Satan, and then we see they're blinded by God. Going back to Romans 1, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 24, after that indictment, that list of charges, he says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So we're blinded by our own sin, we're blinded by Satan, and we're blinded by God. These passages teach us that all of us have been born into sin and darkness and that we are blinded to the wonder, beauty, and majesty of God. This means that we are unable to see the light of Christ. Like the blind men who were miraculously given sight by the work of Christ, you and I need a miracle to see Christ. We need a savior, a light giver, one who who can cause the scales that cover our eyes to fall. Turn to Acts 9. We'll do this very quickly if we can. In Acts chapter 9, you and I are reminded of the testimony of the apostle Paul who had a supernatural encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. You might recall that Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul. He was a man who loved Yahweh. He was zealous for the things of God, but he was blinded to the truth of who Jesus was. And his, in his zealousness to protect God, Yahweh, he was killing those who followed Jesus. And on his way to to Damascus to do some more harm to Christians, we see in verse 10 of of Acts chapter 9 that there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And what we see, I'm sorry I didn't give you the whole story, but as he's walking we see that there's a supernatural light and Paul hears hears like thunder, he hears like a voice calling out saying, Lord, Lord. Uh, or he, Jesus says, why do you, no, I'm getting it all wrong. He says, why are you uh, torturing me, persecuting me? It's at that point that Paul is blinded by the light. And he says, continue on to Damascus. And there he says, a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision. Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. 
He has seen a vision and a man named Ananias came in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias answers, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done. Going down to verse 15, but the Lord said, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That was divine appointment on that road. God had a purpose for Saul. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you has come, has sent me that you may regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Going back, then going forward to verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. Saul born blind is given sight spiritually. Spiritually blind, spiritually given sight by the light of Christ. Though you and I may not have a physical supernatural encounter with the surrender or the resurrected Christ, we too have been raised from the dead and given new spiritual eyes. Eyes that make us able to see the light of Christ. Scripture describes believers are those that at one time were in darkness, but now are in the light of the Lord, and then therefore to walk as children of light. The Apostle Paul writes, for it says, let light shine out of darkness has now shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we make the blind see? Is by showing them Christ, introducing them to Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, or going back to Colossians, Paul says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And again, in 1 Thessalonians, he says, you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness no longer. And lastly, 1 Peter 2.9, here on the monitor, he says of those that have, their disciples of Christ, those that profess Christ, that have submitted to Christ. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You and I once were in darkness, blinded by sin, blinded by Satan, blinded by God. But God in due time came to each and every one of us. I pray that our children of God and open our eyes to the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ through scripture. One may ask then, how does one go about having their eyes open? Walter Leefield remarks that the full illumination only comes when one is willing to receive the light from the lamp of God's truth. There were some in Jesus' audience, many, probably the majority, who did not, who were not willing to receive the light of Christ. I pray that there may not be any here in our service to those who may hear me that have rejected him, but if you have, 
let me share with you that you too can have eternal life. You can receive and have your sight restored by turning to Christ. This comes by receiving God's truth and from Scripture. That's why Scripture is so important. That's why we encourage you to bring your Bibles, to read your Bible. David sings in Psalms 119.10, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The only way to know the name of Christ is through Scripture. The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts. He enlightens our eyes through the testimony of Scripture to the reality of the identity of Jesus. The old priest who dedicated Jesus at his birth, Simeon, declares in Luke chapter 2, he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes now have seen the salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for a revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. Hence why we should use this time to ask people who is Jesus so that the light of Jesus may be revealed to them and they may see that Jesus Christ is more than just a moral teacher, a great influencer, or a man of peace. But he's the Savior of the world. May all who are here this morning come to a knowledge of the saving work of Christ and reconciling us back to God. If you're here this morning and you desire to see and know that Christ then would you pray that the Holy Spirit would come and give you sight? Repent of your sin. Turn in faith that God has accepted the works of Christ in appeasing his wrath, granting you forgiveness for sin, and thereby adopting you as his child. If you're here this morning, if you are a child of God, you have seen the light of Christ, you've tasted and seen that God is good, then he calls you to a life of self-evaluation. To remain in the light by loving God with all your heart, your soul, your might, and then your neighbor as yourself. As a disciple of Christ, he has called you to an uncompromising commitment to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. An uncompromising commitment. Unfortunately, too many people who profess Christ just want enough of him to enter into heaven. They just want fire insurance. They just want a get-out-of-hell-free card. Or they just want to make their life better. You know, I've got an addiction. I've got this problem. i got this or that. I want to be better at my job. I want to make more money. Well, let's just add Jesus to it. D.A. Carson asked this question, how much of God do you want? I want to share this with you here. Look at this. I pray that this may not be your profession, but for many of us, it many times is in our attitudes, especially when we ignore self-evaluation. How much of God do you want? Well... I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. And I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. No, I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, and but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. 
I would like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. We smile and chuckle. But to be honest, that's the state of American Christianity today. I pray it's not the state of anyone here this morning. For to be a disciple of Christ is an uncompromising commitment. Get that in your mind. We've shared with it quite a bit over the last few months. An uncompromising commitment is what Christ requires of those whose eyes he has opened. As the worship team and Randy come up, it's time for us to pause, to consider, to pray and respond. So I'm going to ask you to take a moment to pause and consider what you've learned here, what you've heard this morning. I want you to take a quick moment to pray and pray, continue through this week. I don't want to consider just for the few seconds here, but I want you to consider this message as you go away this week and think about it. Pray about it. Asking the Holy Spirit how you respond. Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to ask for for forgiveness? Do you you have bitterness, resentment, or anger that you need to be putting away as you self-evaluate yourself? Is there a confession that you need to make, a repentance to be offered? Or a sin to mortify, to kill? There's an old phrase, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So this week, take some time to pause in your life. Pray, consider, self-evaluate, asking the Holy Spirit, work in my life. Let me not only see the light, but let me shine forth that light that others may see you and come to glorify you this Christmas season. Whatever it may be, may you glorify God in all that you think, love, and choose. Randy, would you please come and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.